what bugs me a bit is there's been a, a lot of talk recently about should we ban significance testing and should we ban p-values and there's just been a lot of energy put around that and it seems to me like not the right place to put your energy if you want to solve the replication crisis. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers and from Northeastern University and Kristen Sanani, who is uh, our very special guest today, who is an Associate Professor of Health Research and Policy at Stanford University. Kristen, thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the, the first time you came up on my radar was with your work, uh, which was uh, published debunking a flawed inferential method called magnitude-based uh, inference, which has been used in hundreds of studies. And as we know here on Hertz, uh, it can be hard to fix errors and change people's minds, especially when those people have a vested interest in not having their minds changed. So, why on earth did you task yourself with this monumental task? And what's the story behind this? Yeah, so this story starts uh, back in late 2017. I was uh, speaking on a panel at a conference, and also on that panel was the journalist uh, Christy Ashwanden from 538.com, and she frequently uh, tackles uh, subjects like this. Um, She was working on a book on exercise science at the time, and she had come across this funny statistical method in the sports science literature. So she asked me to look at some papers for her. Um, which I think sat in my email box for a few weeks before I actually got to them. But I had put aside one morning to, I'm going to spend a few hours. I'm going to get dig into this. I'm going to give her some feedback. So I started digging into this. And I think uh, for the rest of the day, I was carrying my laptop around between my classes at Stanford, <laughs> furiously typing emails to Christy. And she might have thought I was a little manic because I was like, well, wait, and, and then this is mathematically inconsistent. And then wait, well, I can't believe what the behavior of this statistic is. And We ended up having a conversation the next day, um, and I left that conversation feeling just a bit unsatisfied because I felt like um, I didn't know if she was actually going to write something up for a lay audience for this because it's quite technical. It's very niche, and so I wasn't sure if this was going to get exposed that way. And then even if she wrote something up for a popular audience, I still felt some obligation to actually write up an academic paper about this. (laughs) I, I... I just thought to myself, well, I'll spend the next week, I'll write a thousand word commentary, I will have done my duty, and that will be that. And little did I know. So, can you walk us through, because it's so weird when you see these things online where you're like, this has been used in hundreds of studies, yet until your work had come up, I'd never have heard of this thing. Uh, can, Can you explain what it actually is? It seems to be some weird incorrect hybrid of frequentist and Bayesian statistics. Am I, am I right there or is it? Am I- <laughs> yes, uh, that that's a pretty good description of it. I don't want to get too technical into exactly how this thing works, but I, I can walk you through a little bit. Um, stop me if I get too technical. We can also do the more fuzzy intuitive version. Um, but basically, this thing is in, implemented in Excel spreadsheets, first of all, which we all know that it's not great to do stats in Excel. Um, but you download these spreadsheets, you put your data in. What the spreadsheets are actually doing, although they really haven't actually 
publish this with mathematical formulas anywhere. So the only reason I know what the spreadsheets are doing is because there was a 2015 critique published by Alan Welsh and Emma Knight, and they reverse engineered the spreadsheets. But uh, <laughs> that's how I know. But what they are doing is they are actually running uh, two one-sided hypothesis tests. And it's kind of ironic because a lot of uh, the creators of this method spend a lot of time saying hypothesis testing is bad and you shouldn't do hypothesis testing. And yet actually what their spreadsheets are doing is hypothesis testing. Um, those hypothesis tests are run and then uh, they spit out p-values. The p-values are then interpreted in the common way that people incorrectly interpret p-values. So for example, if you started with the null hypothesis uh, that the intervention is not beneficial, uh, and you get a p-value of 0.24, 24%. MBI would then go ahead and interpret that as there's a 24% chance that the intervention is not beneficial, and therefore a 76% chance that the intervention is beneficial. So we have a, a problem right there. Um, the creators of this method try to justify this. Uh, we can talk about that later if you want. Um, but but that's how the method starts. That's that's problem number one. Second thing that happens is they then take these probabilities that are spit out and they translate these into categorical inferences. Things like <laughs> the intervention is likely beneficial. Guess what people do with those categories? They use them as evidentiary thresholds nice. in exactly the same way that they would have used significance thresholds. So they star in their paper. And instead of inputting in the footnote, P is less than 0.05, they put... The intervention, you know, it has a likely effect and it's uh, used in exactly the same way as those significance thresholds. The problem being that the evidentiary thresholds that MBI provides have much lower standards of evidence than P is less than 0.05 in certain cases, namely when you have small sample sizes, which is what you have in sports science. Uh, wow. So you've literally right. taken the wall. Okay, hang on, hang <laughs> on, hang on, Dan. Hang on, Dan. Look, quick quick statistical translation. Um, basically, that whole thing's bonkers, and it's more than one common misinterpretation stacked together to make something that's kind of super powered for concluding that there is uh, evidence of an effect. That's, I mean, what you've just described in statistical terms is loopy. Yes. That is the Basically. conclusion that most statisticians who look at this have. They do try to justify yeah. the misinterpretation of the p-value by saying, oh, no, we're busy and uh, we, can, we can go there if you want. But then the categorization also results in high type 1 error rates, high false positive. So that's exactly what this method does. In small samples, it finds more things um, <laughs> by lowering standards of evidence. And uh, it's funny because in a way, the, the creators of this method have advertised and pushed it heavily. And some of the things they say are basically saying that we can... We allow our method allows you to uh, be able to publish, you know, more things that are were previously unpublishable from small samples. Wow. They literally say that. So, so they've lowered, they've just lowered the bar for an entire field. Yeah, the sounds of it. E exactly, and you know, we can have a debate about sports science is not cancer therapy, right? 
So maybe the balance of false positives to false negatives, type 1 to type 2 error rates, is it could be that it's different in sports science. It could be that you are willing to allow more false positives in sports science than you would sure. for cancer treatments. I, I'm willing to have that debate. Like that's, I would probably still say we don't want a lot of false positives. I can give you the reasons why, but I that's a legitimate debate. The problem in this debate has been that the uh, uh, people pushing this method are unwilling to admit that their method <laughs> has a high type 1 error rate. They published a paper, which is much of what I critiqued in my initial paper, Literally saying type 1, uh, MBI has better type 1 and type 2 error rates than standard hypothesis testing. (laughs) Magic. It's magic. That is dubious at face value. Yes. Christian, do you want to explain why I'm laughing? (laughs) Yes. uh, Yeah. So type 1 and type 2 error trade-off. So type 1 error is your false positives. Type 2 error is your false negatives. If you make it easier to find things, you will automatically have more false positives. So it's just, it, that is a mathematical truism and, and you can't get mm. around it. Well, it's what they are, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the idea that you could somehow magically, exactly, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a magic statistical method, basically, that you could do better in both is, is um, yeah, it's it's laughable. So so it sounds like, okay, so just to, to, just to summarize, we have a method here which can only be accessed via an Excel spreadsheet, and that spreadsheet can only be downloaded from one particular website. And this method has yet to be verified by actual statisticians or anyone because they can't actually see the inner workings of this. And there are hundreds of outcomes that use this inferential method. Wow. You've got it. Exactly. It's also, it's also, it's got some amazing power uh, to take the quantities A, B, C, and D that are mutually related uh, and make them do what I can only describe as not maths. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are playing fast and loose with math, yes. <laughs> right. So that's a minor issue. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why uh, I have got roped into this. And even though I thought I would just publish this one paper and be done with it, this is why I have. Mm-hmm. I am still working on this almost two years later, um, and haven't been able to how, how let it go. How long did it take you? How long did it take you to get that first paper published? As a as a sort of a, put it into the context of publishing the critical thing. How long? How long so, did it um, take? I wrote up that paper in two weeks. It was a mad scramble where I was a very bad parent for two weeks and <laughs> wrote that up because uh, I I just you know I wanted to get it done and off. It was just an extra thing I was doing. Um, sent that out. Um, yeah. It went to the journal and actually got a note from the journal editor letting me know that the review process might take a little bit long. I guess I should have kind of started to understand the backstory a little bit at that point. Um, it took, I submitted it in early December and I didn't get the reviews back until March. And this is uh, because this has been controversial. It has been criticized before. There there must have been some stuff going on in the background with getting reviewers. Um I got the reviews back and turned it around pretty quickly, and it was published in April um, of 2018. So not 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 too it's bad. All right. no, like four to five. No, not not bad at all. No, it, the, the review was a little bit longer than normal, I would say, because of the fact that there was some controversy in the background. But 
Well, I think I think that's a, someone who's taken more than a year to get something published because it was hurting someone's feelings. <laughs> I think that speaks very well to the yeah, journal and the process. I give a lot of because obviously it's uh, sorry. I give a lot of credit to the editors at uh, Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise. They had published a critique on this before. They were aware of the whole thing and the controversy, um, and so you know they were willing to to publish something that was critical. Have they? I know a few journals have mm. banned. The method have, have, has this journal banned that method? They have, yes, yes. Okay, they, they did their due diligence, yes. Um, presumably, they find everything convincing. It wasn't just a matter of uh, also not getting in trouble with you. No, they, they, and I your think mighty two-week paper <laughs> hammer. <laughs> That's right. I think they went out and talked to a lot of statisticians. <laughs> they got input and they um, made a decision based on looking at this critically and, uh, I, you know, uh, hats off to them for, for taking the time to do that. Hey, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Now you've had, uh, of course you've come up a lot of, come up against a lot of criticism, um, both from the originators of the method, um, but also other people within the field as well. What's it been like trying to, uh, Trying to working with these people when it comes to trying to convince them that their method's flawed. Well, I, yeah, I I, I kind of got surprised by their response. I had been warned a little bit the, by the creators of this method. There are two sports scientists who are primarily um, the ones who created and are disseminating this. Uh, their their response was a bit surprising to me. Um, they were not happy with me. I guess that's you know uh, go, goes with the the territory. Um, uh, one of the funny things was though in their response to me, they called me an establishment statistician, and that was supposed to be an insult. I guess I kind of <laughs> I, I was so proud of that. Now, now one of my favorite phrases: establishment. Establishment. St- I, I put it in my Twitter as bio. if as <laughs> love it. Oh. <laughs> That's beautiful. As as if, of course, that like having having an establishment of methods which were connected <laughs> via mathematical uh, conclusions and inferences was somehow a bad thing. It, exactly. Um, yeah. Because uh, look, here's here's a, a quick point. If if you're leading a rearguard rebellion against how to add up, and you put yourself in the role of rogue, um, yeah, you you probably don't want to be on the um the controversial side of what at some level is sort of arithmetic. That, that, um, that's I it. think we could probably go, I'm not really much one for establishments in general, as might be violently clear from everything I've ever said, but I think this is probably a case where it's good to be the establishment <laughs> statistician. Good to be able to know that two plus two equals four, yes, and to go with uh, mathematical, uh, things that can be proven mathematically are hard to refute. So in their you know sort of responses to me, they were like, well, we've just proven every one of her claims. And I'm like, well, how is that possible? Because it's math. I proved things mathematically. I derived, you know, the error rates for you, you know, thank you. For, yeah. And, and they, so, so yeah, the, the response was interesting. I have to say the response though, from the sports science community is actually quite heartening to me. That is, I've had a lot of people email me and they really want to do things correctly. They may have been using MBI, but are now questioning it. Um, so I have not got a lot of negative feedback from many people in the sports science, com- the broader sports science community. And that's nice to know. I, I had one great comment on Twitter that I saw somebody had written something like, well, I'm pro MBI, whatever that means. Uh, but, you know, I think she might have convinced me. So, I, you know, I felt great that I might have changed a mind uh, on something like this where people are kind of dogmatic. No. 
I think it really speaks to the larger issue of, of, of smaller sample sizes or sample sizes that are too small for the, for the actual designs. Because it sounds like that this method with, with you know, I think with, with large enough or with appropriate sample sizes, it seems like you are going to get relatively similar inferences regardless. I mean, it's the same thing with Bayesian and frequent statistics. You almost get the same sort of conclusions, so to speak, using these two methods. So, it seems like if you happen to have appropriate sample sizes in the first place- it There'd be no really need matter. to actually yes. use, yeah, it, it, yeah, there's no need to use MBI. So, instead of using these, 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 you know, breaking the laws of mathematics, just just recruit a few more people, you know. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, see, you, you, you say that, you say that, Dan, mm. in, your, in your funded chair, yeah. in your funded country. Um, getting money to do sports science projects is not straightforward. Um, an awful lot of research is done by graduate students. It's not a particularly well-funded area. And they have these deeply annoying models where a lot of the time you're looking at chronic training effects. So six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, sometimes longer. And you have to have people come in multiple times a week and hit them with a stick and make them do their leg presses and run on their little treadmill. And you have to give them a million wind gates to hurt <laughs> their feelings because apparently that's amusing to people. Um if people aren't familiar with the Wingate, uh, basically they give you an exercise bike and then you die. That's the, the quick version. Um, so it's very common to see uh, a sample size of seven. Well, I should say a cell size of seven in two or three groups. Or um, uh, I was reviewing one earlier today, actually, and I thought, oh, they've done well because they've got a sample size of 36 That's split between two for groups. Sports science. <laughs> um, uh, it is, it is, but it's also um that was also a one shot, so that, that's not looking at a chronic training effect. So it's much easier to get the people in and, and and knock them about a bit, make them wait a few hours, and then shuffle them on. So it's just a question of competing concerns. The way it, it feels like you've got a lot of pressure built up behind how are we supposed to do business here. What's supposed to like? Oh, but my my job is writing down words in order to make papers. What makes it easier? MBI makes it easier. Exactly. So you get this pressure valve. Everyone tells you that all of a sudden that becomes a new normal. If you use this, this sample size is okay, and it represents a kind of an efficiency dividend or a cost saving. You know, and you know, PhD students finishing, run out of RA money, master student only has one semester. You know how it mm. goes. Yeah, and this is literally the practice. Part a lot of the argument that the creators of this method have given for it is this sort of practical, like, well, it's so dispiriting when a student can't publish, and uh, you know, it's um, they can't get things published. It's all about the publication as the endpoint, which, as we know, is not a good, uh, really shouldn't be the goal of science. But yeah, understandably. Sports science has smaller sample sizes. No, yeah. oh, but it's yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, my heart bleeds for you. But what's what's worse, having an entire literature full of shit that no one can trust, where the the the, the next student who's in a hurry has to come along and do something similarly meaningless, exactly, or try to figure out a way to get around uh, the obvious constraints that the field presents in right. the first I, place. I mean, uh, the, my first, my first answer is sort of, well, would you consider a consortium yeah. study? Yes. Get together with your smelly old friends, um, get a cohort of master students, agree on collecting a data set that is justifiable from an initial power analysis, do your study, and then you can all write your own stuff on the cohort of data that you've collected. So, is it more work? Yes. Will the answers potentially have 
uh, any ability to reliably form observations? Also, yes. It's just, I mean, science science doesn't give a shit whether or not your job is hard. Right. It's just <laughs> what it is. Right. And it, <clears throat> the idea that you would answer the problem of small samples by just saying, well, oh, well, well, we're just going to do a bunch of studies then that can't answer the, the question that they set out to answer doesn't seem like a good answer. Yeah, absolutely. Or, um, you know, do a, do a multi-shot one. Uh, commit a single student to doing a cohort of data collection, then stop, don't publish it, file everything. Um, get someone else to do it. Oh, but they need to publish and it's in a hurry. Write, write something intermediate that's not necessarily a full publication. Try and use that as a, an impetus to create more data in the future. Look, there's, there's, there's lots of ways around it. N none of them are... Uh, make it as straightforward as changing the mathematical criteria <laughs> for what's interesting. Right. But Or write a pre-registration yeah. report. I mean, you can do that now, too. Uh, yeah. I th yeah, because I, 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 like I think uh, and I think if one or two journals are now doing registered reports as well within the sports and medicine sciences. They are, yeah. Uh, and it's really interesting because uh, sports science seems to be in the beginning stages of the sort of reckoning that we've been having in, in the psychological <laughs> sciences where they've kind of realized something's not right. Um, yes. And what's what's great for them is that they can look to to the psychological sciences to see what we've done right and what we've done wrong and and learn these lessons. And at the same time, we can actually look to other fields as well. Uh, I mean, we've we've been inspired by um, you know there's the psychological the psychological accelerator, which is similar to CERN, where you're basically getting groups of labs coming together to answer common research questions and nice. looking at psychiatric genetics, for example, when they actually realised the only way to get uh, uh, to get meaningful results was to band together. So I don't know, rather than putting your head in the sand, I think you need to look around to see what have other fields done and what can we learn from these other fields. Exactly. Rather than being insular, which is a, a lot of why MBI even has propagated in sports science in the first place. Has it propagated anywhere else, Kristen? It has not, although there was one paper we came across where somebody was writing about it in uh, user experience research, uh, but it doesn't seem to have taken hold there. Right. So, like, besides potentially no more than a handful of papers, it's totally confined to one wow. field. That's exactly. really yeah. hard. Yes. <laughs> I don't think I've heard of anything quite like that before because, I mean, in general, someone comes up with a trick and, ah, oh, this is regularized ridge regression, but we've added ferrets. Suddenly everyone's using it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's got to say something that other fields haven't adopted this because, I mean, right. I mean, oh, but, but then again, it can be tricky because look, look at equivalence testing. Until up, up until about a few years ago, no one within the psychological sciences had heard of equivalence testing, even though it's been quite popular in, in pharmacological sciences. And all of a sudden, one bloke from from the Netherlands comes along, going, "Oh, look, it's equivalence testing," and all, all of a sudden, everyone's using, which is, which is great. So that, I don't that's know. That's true. Yeah, there's lots of tools that are uh, unfortunately that exist in the statistical toolbox that we have not been using as much as we should um, for the jobs that they were meant for. I think this is a case where, uh, yeah, we th there's probably a lot of sociological reasons why MBI has been confined to this one field. Part of it is that the creators of this method have really pushed it very heavily on their personal website, which they mm. <laughs> misleadingly call a peer-reviewed journal, which it is not. Really? Um, Yes. Well, they say on the top peer review journal. Well, the peer review consists of like one guy writes the articles and the other same guy uh, reviews all of his articles. No. Reviews. Yes. Wow. So, um, 
Imagine, imagine how much they must agree with each other. Imagine, Dan. Imagine we started a peer review I'm, journal. We've already. Right. We'd never get anything published. <laughs> yeah, I know. We, we, we have discussed this. What, what would happen if we reviewed each other's papers? And I think it'd be, it'd be a madhouse. But uh, <laughs> it'd be a fucking massacre. It would be. But, it, but, but, but in this case, <laughs> I know you're better than this. <laughs> So, yeah, mostly only the sports science community ever would traverse that website. I mean, it's not being traversed by statisticians. So that's why it's kind of been isolated and, and been able to persist as long as it has. That's uh, oh, it's, it's, it's such, such a strange but also understandable story. Yeah, I mean, it's not unique in that, like, if we look at other cases of error correction, trying to get errors corrected in the literature, it has a lot of the same elements of people getting defensive and not wanting to admit they're wrong. And uh, But it's kind of an extreme case of it, I think. And I want to ask, though, obviously, there's been a few hundred papers published and some journals that have now banned it obviously now have papers in their records. <laughs> Do you, what do you do with those papers? Do you reanalyze them? Are people, is, is there a, a, an expression of concern? What do you, what do, you uh, yeah. do? Um, I, I'm not sure that anything will get done. I'm, there are lots of bad papers in the literature that never get anything. <laughs> that, that's, that's a great um, point. It might that's go a- on that pile. Um, there, you know, there's lots of things wrong in these papers that is not specifically related to MBI. More like, you know, that things don't add up kinds of errors. Um, So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you could, a lot of these papers contain just basic confidence intervals. So you could go back and just look at the confidence intervals. You know, there's ways to kind of, uh, I can tell which papers contain a lot of evidence for their conclusions and which ones don't uh, with some small amount of statistical trickery. (laughs) And, And I'm assuming that sports science isn't a field that shares raw data. A lot? Not often, no. Okay, because that, that, that would solve a lot of problems. That would uh, solve so many problems. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? If we if that, everybody shared their data and every research project had an independent statistician on it, then the world would be oh, blue in, skies. In, oh, oh that, that's, would, that's interesting. People wouldn't pay you money to do statistics for a living, would they, Chris? <laughs> you'd, have, you'd, you'd need a lot of people <laughs> to do statistics for a living, yes. Uh, but really, I mean, you know, I, that would just solve uh, so many things if you had – an independent statistician who had no vested interest in like what way the data come out, who can actually be the one to answer the questions. I mean, uh, sounds so simple, well, of course. So, something. Well, we some, some resources. Something, so that, something that I've heard is that maybe you can confirm this for me is that there's, it, it already feels like to many people that there is a shortage of statisticians. Oh, that yeah. I kind of heard that shortage. somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I might have heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic being or not. Sarcastic. I don't know how many statisticians there are. <laughs> Certainly there are none in my basement. Yeah, there are not enough biostatisticians <laughs> to go around, and um, they tend to be overworked and be, you know, 1% on a project. When Do, doing the, po- never, the postmortem. Right. It never takes, uh, you know, 1% of your time on any one of these projects. So. Yeah. No, and how do you manage that if it's multiple projects? I mean, I, I have enough difficulty being paid out of two or three funding sources when suddenly something comes up and it just it blows up in your face um, and you have to kind of work to task. If you're getting lots and lots and lots of tiny contributions, especially when you can't predict when they're going to mm. come, um, that's that's hard. It's really, really difficult to navigate um like unknowable outcomes from multiple projects that are for tiny contributions. Yeah, that's why I don't work full-time as a statistician. I I do a lot of teaching and writing as well. 
so that I do, I'm not uh, dependent on that small percent time from this project and that project analyzing data. Uh, I think uh, that and is right, and then and in your and in your spare time, you get into to, to punching this stuff up. Uh, when you're in your manifest spare time, no doubt. Um, so I mean, let's 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 continue the narrative for a laugh because I'm interested. So, I mean, that's that feels like it. So you you publish this; it takes four or five months. Yep. Awesome. Uh, there's a rejoinder, and the rejoinder it is. Um, Refuting all of the establishment statisticians' points, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how does it how does it roll on from there? You mean presumably you don't yourself write a rejoinder to the rejoinder. We don't want to go down that particular rabbit hole. Or did well, you? Well, no, I, I, well, I did not. They they published this long. Oh, the, fu- the there's a funny story in this. So after my paper came out, they actually emailed me the creators of this method um, and said something like, "Well, we have already penned a five thousand word rebuttal, you know, refuting every one of your claims about MBI." And we would like you to co-moderate a debate about our rebuttal on our website, which I was kind of like, uh, no, thank you. Um, but anyway, um, so they published this very long thing on their own personal website. Which is peer-reviewed by... Right, peer-reviewed by peer reviewed one or the other. Website. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. exactly. Just got to clear um, that up. <laughs> and um, that came out really fast um, and it... Uh, I'm pretty sure from having had uh, this email conversation where we went back and forth that they really didn't actually get the central point of my paper. Um, So um, anyway, they did publish a letter to the editor of Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise um, because my paper was, you know, they could write in uh, a letter to my paper. So I got to publish a response to that. My response was basically like nothing in your criticism of my paper actually addresses the central point of my paper um, mm. because they went off on a lot of tangents that actually had nothing to do with I I called my paper the problem with magnitude-based inference and there was a reason I used that in the singular is that I focused on th- there could be many problems we could talk about but I focused on one which is the type 1 error problem mm. um, and they kind of just ignored that um, yeah so what happened from there um, is this blew up on Twitter. Um, I got some experience uh, trying to write short things to convince people on Twitter and uh, make pretty pictures, like cute little pictures that could illustrate the problem in one simple picture, which actually is kind of a f- fun from a communications standpoint. Um, and then some of the journals did ban it, or at least medicine and science and sports and exercise. I sort of let it lie for a while. But then uh, I got contacted by another sports scientist who said, hey, we should follow up on this some more. Um, And so we started chatting. uh, We roped a few other people in. And then there was uh, a paper that came out in uh, the Scandinavian Journal of uh, Medicine and Science and Sports uh, a little while back. And that somebody wrote a letter to the editor and said, hey, this method seems weird. Uh, and the the response uh, from the authors to that letter to the editor was basically sort of rehashing what the creators of MBI had told people to do, which is to say, no, we're doing a Bayesian analysis. So that was their response. Oh, it's perfectly valid because we're actually we're just doing a Bayesian analysis. So we we felt we couldn't let that lie. And so then we ended up writing a whole uh, more broad criticism of MBI for that journal, which did get published. And we have another paper in the works. 
So <laughs> we're hoping to publish in a statistical journal um, because we feel like we need to bring the, stat- the statistical community in now to if, if this is ever going to be ended. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to work on this forever. <laughs> no, of course. Because I mean, yeah, tell me. About- it, it, it sounds like the creators were well intentioned to begin with. Uh, to have less of a focus on 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 <laughs> on sort of to more of a focus on effect sizes, um, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, you know, they, these things can often get uh, often get mis- mis- misguided. I, I feel like yeah, they had good intentions. Um, you know, they were trying to do something good, and I think this is a you know common theme when errors get pointed out in the literature. The first critique came out in two thousand and eight. If they had just like actually tried to engage with the substance of that critique at that point and said, "Oh, okay, what are you? Uh, let me understand what you're trying, what you're critiquing. Let me try to fix our method," and had done something at that point and actually admitted, "Yeah, our method isn't quite right," um, y- y- you know, they would have ended up in such a better place. And it wouldn't mm. it be great if every author, when an error is pointed out, if their <laughs> response was simply. Uh, thank you for pointing out the error. Yes, you are correct. And I'm going to fix it immediately. You know, that happens occasionally. And I always feel like when authors do that, I have the utmost respect, like their reputation, my opinion of them goes up tenfold. So why not just respond to that way in error? Why have the normal defensive human response, right? Mm, yeah, well, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people just don't see it that way. I mean, if your whole outcome is, I mean, so some some people even think having continuous, unending fights about something is kind of good for business. Maybe, you know? yeah. It's a, maybe I mean, that's the case. More, 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 more time, more column inches, more articles, more arguments. Oh, we'll send it straight to her because we'll know she'll have a problem with it, and then you know something else is published, and then someone else writes a. A, a larger paper going summing up the entirety of the debate. Everyone gets cited. Um, everyone gets an A minus, and we all go home with a special badge <laughs> that says, "I uh, have been particularly productive today." Uh, pinned to your lapel like a primary school. That's kid. an interesting way to look so, at it. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of a lot of people don't mind uh, this sort of close mutual enemy sort of relationship that you end up getting because you continually have something to say. And when it's a complicated topic with a lot of unknowns, um, you you end up with something that's more an ideological battle where the points are already made, but it just seems to be no one no one's really interested in drawing a conclusion because that would ruin the game. This does feel like um, an ideological look, battle, a- yes. <laughs> But I mean, that's a really interesting point. So if someone if someone had paid more attention to the original points that were made, or what's getting on more than a decade ago, none of this would have happened in the first place. Um, that is a wonderful metaphor for the way that NHST is used in psychology in general. I was reviewing something earlier today. That was sort of the uh, the old school criticisms of how all of this is done, and Cohen's original power paper from 1962. <laughs> and like, well, we just we just let it lie because presumably because it's good for business, or is it just too hard to work out? I don't know. You probably know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. On uh, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back again soon with some more. Everything hurts. 
If two Hertz episodes per month isn't enough for you, you can hear an additional bonus episode by becoming an Everything Hurts patron for only $5 a month. If you can't swing the $5 but still want to support the show financially, we also have a $1 per month tier, which gives you access to a monthly newsletter. All of your financial support goes directly back into the show. If you want to support the show non-financially, we'd love it if you could leave an iTunes review or share links to the episodes on social media. Now, let's get back to it. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. For this episode, we are speaking with Kristen Sainani. Uh, and Kristen, you uh, we, you can find Kristen on Twitter at, uh, at Kristen Sainani, which is, uh, which is one word, and we'll post that to the notes. But Kristen, you also have uh, written a Coursera course, which is called Writing in the Sciences. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about this course? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, uh, besides doing teaching statistics, I also teach writing because I have uh, training in science journalism. I do um, a lot of science writing. And uh, one of the, what I think is one of the most under recognized uh, causes of the replication crisis is actually that we do such a poor job of writing in science. Mm. You can hide a lot of BS and things that don't make sense mathematically in uh, bad writing. Um, And so this course is specifically aimed at scientists who are writing grants and manuscripts uh, to try to write more clearly and concisely and say what you mean rather than trying to sound very academic and pretentious. And um, I really think if we could fix the writing in science, that would fix so many problems that we have in science, the replication crisis, the the public not believing in science, uh, these kinds of things. So, so my course is designed at trying to get scientists to approach writing in a different way. And who, who is the course targeted at? What sort of, what sort of level of seniority? Any level, really, from undergraduate to working scientists who have been doing this for 20 years and getting them to rethink, like, oh, why am I putting so many acronyms and big words in when I can just say it in short form and be logical? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's targeted at a wide range of scientists. It's uh, it's interesting that you say that it's, uh, it's a contributor to the replication crisis. Can, can you give us an example of how poor writing could actually do this? Is it more because it's a, a sophisticating uh, results or how, well, how is this done? I'll go back to the MBI example. In their responses, which have helped obfuscate the whole thing and keep it going, keep MBI going, they, they have been able to convince enough sports science journal editors or at least confuse them that, that they're not quite sure if this is right. If you read their writing, some of it actually makes no sense. Like the statistical arguments actually make no sense. But if you're used to writing that is very convoluted um, and hard to understand, if that's just your default, the writing that you always read, it's harder to pick out that that is nonsense, right? Um, And so if most of the writing in the literature is that way, and it's very hard, it's very hard to evaluate the science in something if you have to spend 20 minutes just decoding the paragraph, uh, right? (laughs) And so uh, there was a great article out uh, maybe two years ago where um, somebody fed all of like the science, like a large swath of the scientific literature through a readability program. And they showed that the readability of the scientific literature is going down like a very, (laughs) at a very steep rate uh, over the last century and even the last decade. Uh, and the average readability score on a uh, scale from zero to 100, where 100 means it's very, very readable and zero is basically gibberish, uh, the scientific literature scored an average of 10. Wow. So I think that's a problem. 
that's a massive problem. Well, well, I've got we've got a we've got a I I, I want to read that paper now. We need to to find that and stick it in the uh in the the episode information. Life, I think, was the journal. E-Life. Okay, cool. Right. Yeah, we will definitely find that. So, was it specific to biology no, or was it broader of, than that? All of all fields. Okay, right. Oh, I don't know how I managed to miss that because that's, I mean, that's dire. Yes. Uh, I wonder what would happen if you took one of those uh, scientific text generators <laughs> and um, put, put that through the readability metric. Oh, yes. Uh, that's an example I use in uh, a lot of my lectures is the one that was created at MIT that generates nonsense scientific text, but I have not tried putting it through that the uh, ease of reading scale, uh, automatic uh, grader. So I, I'll try that. Uh, we, well, we could leave it as an exercise for the listener. Should we have a prize, Dan, for the first person who, who takes a, a, a fake generated paper and runs readability? I think I did. Wow, that is the nerdiest prize. I think I might have just invented the I James, prize. I, I think I have a better, a better competition. Let's run both of our representative papers through it and see who gets a better <laughs> score. Oh, that's a good no. one. I think, uh, we'll pick, we'll pick us. Going to lose it makes sense to me. <laughs> I promise it makes Let's sense. Let's do that. I promise it Let's makes do that. One sense. of our single author papers. Oh, Kristen, you, you've got me in trouble. <laughs> well, Kristen. But that that's funny. So keep we, going. We um <laughs> from from the best of my knowledge, you are our first actual statistician to join the show. We've had a lot of people who are uh, very talented at statistics, but you're our first actual trained statistician <laughs> to join the show. And one thing we, we've talked about a lot is this idea of statistical significance. And it's, it's I mean, we've, we've spoken about the proposal to redefine statistical significance. We have spoken about justifying your, your, your thresholds. What is your take as, as a statistician on this? <laughs> Yeah, I think we need to teach people basic statistical reasoning first before we even worry about um, should we ban significance testing. I, I'm all for having the discussion about uh, you know justifying your alpha and should we redefine significance testing. These are all good conversations. Um, what bugs me a bit is there's been a a lot of talk recently about should we ban significance testing and should we ban p-values and there's just been a lot of energy put around that and it seems to me like not the right place to put your energy if you want to solve the replication crisis. I, I mean, I, I teach all about how people misuse and misinterpret p-values. I'm in total agreement that that's a problem. But I think that that is a symptom of a deeper problem. It is not the cause of the replication crisis. And until you go back five steps and solve the deeper problem, you can hand applied researchers a different tool. I promise you they will make just as many mistakes. It might not be exactly the same mistake. So you might fix a few mistakes that are uh, specific to p-values, but you, you will make a whole host of different mistakes because until you like teach people to use the tools and when to use what tool, that's you're not going to fix anything by just saying like, oh, oops, you misused that tool, so let's hide it away in the closet and like not let you use it, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> I see quite often a lot of people are, are, are relying on these on these flow charts to make their decisions on what test and what approach to use. Which, yeah, right. I have a great example of this uh, in 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 a paper that I just reviewed in Sports Science. What I've actually noticed in Sports Science is I've now had a few papers come by my desk for review that have swapped out 
p-values for Bayes factors. So now they have Bayes factors instead of p-values. It did not fix anything, by the way, for those <laughs> of you who think it might fix the world. Um, the, the one that I recently reviewed uh, was a study where they were looking at um, agreement between two measures. And so in order to look mm -hmm. at agreement, you look at correlation, like an interclass correlation coefficient. How well do they go together, those two measurements? If you go through one of those flow charts, though, you will come to paired t-test as your, Ooh. <laughs> you know, right? So what does a paired t-test do? It, it, it asks the question, is the difference between the two measurements, is the mean of that difference zero? Well, you can have a mean difference of zero if five subjects had a, you know, a difference of plus 100 and five subjects had a difference of plus of negative 100. Those are those measures don't agree, right? Um, so the, the authors had used a had used a Bayesian paired t-test rather than a frequentist paired t-test, but the problem was <sighs> it, it wasn't a t-test. It was they needed to do an interclass correlation coefficient, and so you know that's the kind of thing where understanding even what what is the question I'm trying to answer and what's the right tool for that question, you have to fix that first. And this was a case actually where the study wasn't salvageable. They couldn't just go back and reanalyze their data now because they didn't measure enough people. <clears throat> and when you're doing agreement, if you only measure, say, 10 people, and if agreement is not near perfect, you're going to get confidence intervals that basically span from zero to one on your correlation, which means <laughs> your answer is like the agreement could be anything. And that's exactly what happened here. And so it wasn't even like they could go back and reanalyze the data correctly. They needed to design the study correct. And that's another issue is we got to go back to like people knowing what their research question is at step one, when they're designing their study and designing the study in a way can, that can answer that question. You can't fix that after the fact by, you know, swapping out p-values with Bayes factors. Yeah. And you, you can't send it for a statistical review and have the statistician go, ah, no, look, you've used solution C. What you want here is solution G. Find this code, run it, everything will be fine, my son. <laughs> uh, you just used the wrong procedure. You, you, you used the wrong design. I mean, the paper that you've just described, uh, presumably when that happened, they didn't look at the data. They did not graph I mean, I their mean data. They, they That's didn't, right. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't do – it's not even a matter of there's no bias and limits of agreement, Altman represent. Um, <laughs> it's, it's more they didn't actually put all the things on one thing and all the other things on the other thing and look at how they were related. Exactly. It wasn't inspected. That, that's right. Yes. And that's, I mean, give this again goes back to if we want to solve the replication crisis, you know, focusing on how we use p-values or whether we use them, like you got to teach people to go back and like do the basic due diligence on their data. They got to graph the data. Like, you, the first thing you do with data is make a plot. And if you <laughs> pop your data into an Excel spreadsheet, you're probably not plotting it. I mean, maybe you can plot in Excel, I don't know, but uh, but you're not, you know, then you're not checking your data and doing all the things that if if you have an outlier that's throwing off all your statistics and you don't catch that, well, the, the paper's garbage. I mean, that's th those kinds of really basic things that we somehow haven't taught people to do well. I think that yeah, that's uh, I, 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 I tell look we we both have done historically a lot of biosignal work, and I only realized recently that it was excellent accidental training for hmm. other forms of data management, data handling, because signals come in, um, 
if you want to know whether or not it's any good in the first place, you have to look at it while it's being mm. recorded. And then you have to take all of the actual pieces of the signal and then you have to deploy something on it to get the numbers in the first place. And you'll know whether or not it makes any sense. Even when you're calculating uh, heart rate variability statistics, one of the first things you do is look at a return map to see whether or not you've got any errors in the actual thing. So you're going, look at it, analyze it essentially by looking at it, and then graph the things that you've previously looked at twice to try and determine whether or not uh, everything makes sense. Because if you don't do that, I mean, if you've got an hour's worth of an ECG and you look at it by yourself, you're out of your damn mind. You'll just be like, you'll, you'll, you'll wear the scroll button out on your mouse. You're not, you're not using your time efficiently. It's just you, 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 you start doing other stuff. You start saying, well, well let's, let's run some code. What deviates from the template? And before you know it, you're kind of training in that sort of the, the basic analytical background of numbers must be inspected is kind of beaten into you because it has to be. And even then, people uh, <laughs> still manage to come up with uh, what could, because the moment you make an automated method and someone says, oh, we can do this automatically, no problem. The moment you the moment you do that, it removes a great deal of the 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 basic the the the, the basic diligence that would happen if you were looking at the mm. signal. It removes the thinking, and that's part, of course, yes. <laughs> yeah, and that that's and of course that's a lot of the time that's actually what people want. Uh, they want something like, look, I don't need to know all that. I'm sure a machine can do it for me. It can. But the amount of back end that you have to put on one to do everything the right way, you can't do that with your free software that was written in someone's master's program. It's just a, some some exercise. It's not going to work like that. Um, do you, do you have um, what's what's your um who's who, who's the biggest offender when it comes to this? Because I'm sure you've got more experience at this than we do. Uh, you mean using statistics who's- as a black box and not thinking about it? Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Well, there's a there's a lot of offenders out there. I'd say that that is that is at the heart of the replication crisis right there. Is that we've uh, taught courses in statistics where uh, somehow we're teaching students to press this button and this button and maybe test these two assumptions that I haven't told you why they matter or when they matter, and and you know check that box and then out comes some result and you cut and paste that result into your paper and you're done as if that's how you do statistics. That is a terrible way to teach people to do statistics and we got to reshape all of that if you want to solve the replication crisis or again just you know have independent statisticians analyze everything. Thing, which is not a practical solution. So we got we got to do better on the teaching end. And I, I, a lot of people seem to be a bit hesitant to work with independent statisticians for this for this sort of stuff. What are, what's kind of the biggest misconception that you found with your with your own work when you work with people? They might they might come with certain assumptions of what it's like working with a statistician. But what are some misconceptions that people often have? Ah, uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, I've always had very good working relationships with people. So I, I kind of view my role often as the Grinch. That is, I am the person who comes back and says um, to them, that thing that you think is happening, that, that treatment that you think is working, I'm sorry to say that the data do not bear that out. Uh, but I work with a lot of people who I have a really good working relationship with. They trust me. They've known me for a long time. And they sort of trust that like, okay, yep, we're going to not publish that paper that we had on the presses <laughs> based on Kristen's feedback, but they, they are willing to do that because they know in the long run, 
that I will help improve the accuracy and like the, the, the test of time on their research. So I have to say, I've mostly had pretty good um, working relationships with the people that I work closely with. Um, so I think it's important if you're going to work with an independent, independent statistician, it's got to be somebody you trust. There has to be that trust there so that when the statistician comes back uh, with the bad news <laughs> uh, or telling them, no, you can't do that. Like sometimes I'm a lot of like, nope, you can't. We can't make that decision based on the p-value and things like that, um, that, that they're going to be receptive and actually hear me and be okay with the feedback I'm giving. So I, that doesn't really answer your question though. Um, maybe I, I've just been lucky in having good experiences. <laughs> but I think that really speaks to the importance of actually yeah. speaking to a statistician while you're designing the study because there are a lot of yes. things that you can't that you yes. can't because un- yes. some, some things when the horse yes. is bolted, uh, you, you can't really fix these things. But from the very be- it's exactly the same as, as getting getting criticisms on a preprint. It's like, okay, cool, I can fix this. Well, exactly. well, unless it's a statistical problem from from not talking to a statistician. Uh, but in a lot of in a lot of cases during the research design stage, I've worked with independent statisticians for designing clinical trials, and it was incredible. They they pointed out a lot of stuff that I missed originally, which could not have been fixed by the time it came to the actual uh, to the actual publication and analysis stage. It's uh, and it's amazing, and just to have anybody who's outside, because of course you have biases and the people that you work with have biases, but to have people that are independent uh, can be really good for your research. Yeah, not having a vested interest in the answer to the question is really, really powerful. And I work with very well-intentioned people who want to get the right answer, but that bias is hard to shake when you really think something works. It creeps in there. Mm. All right. How do we all acquire independent, competent statisticians <laughs> without any money? I know. I know. It's not a practical solution. But that, <laughs> so that goes back to the we've got to teach people it, it to do is, things better. Uh, we've got to teach people to do statistics better. We've got to teach people to write better, uh, you know, uh, the things I spend a lot of time doing. Oh, yeah. Look, look one, one thing I would really like uh, funders and more senior types to pay attention to is writing that the initial consultation, writing that as a yeah. line item yes. into For a grant sure. that was not that was not a tiny contribution over time, but was a chunk of someone else's money that was upfront that went for a particular period of time to make sure the way that everything is designed is going to behave itself in the first instance with someone who doesn't give a shit whether or not it works. Yeah. Because, I mean, look, there's there's always DVO. I'm like, well, we can't do that because well, what if the plan changes, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> the million normal excuses. Um, plans plans like that always change. When someone gives you the money, you go, okay, right, first thing, here's the plans. Here's the protocol. Here's a great big fat shitload of money or, you know, just enough. Please tell us anything that we've missed. Because, I mean, a, a lot of projects are being deployed on the back of whether or not they're being funded in the first instance. We'll put some of that aside to make sure you're not wasting your time when you get right to the end of it. It's not even like, oh, the horse has already bolted. It hasn't bolted. It's it's bolted, run down the road, gone to the airport and bought a fucking business class <laughs> ticket to Paraguay. It's never coming back. And all you're left of is an empty space where the horse used to be. It's just there's 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 nothing there's nothing that you can do in a situation like that. And the people that it fucks over the worst are yeah. students. Yes. Because people who are getting like stuck on the top of a project, I have to do this thing. They they're not allowed to make maybe they're not 
qualified to, but in general, they're not allowed to change things about the protocol, even if they find out there's things that they don't like. And then for everyone else, it's, oh, we don't get to do the publications. But for them, it's, I don't get to start doing research in the formal sense where people will say, hello, young person, where is all your published stuff? And it's a hell of a thing to say, oh, I did a great study or what I thought was a great study until Kristen turned up and hurt me feelings. <laughs> I think it really- it don't, so don't want to be in that position. It, it really speaks to. I mean, I think I think it's in the funder's best interest to actually devote a tiny amount, absolutely, uh, of of the research budget. Talk to a statistician. I, I think it's going to make a massive, massive difference. Now, before we wrap up, we do like what do you, what, what what do you re- what do you reckon though? Like ten grand, twenty? Oh, oh gosh, good, I don't know what's how much a good it costs. Item. To, yeah, I mean, it depends on the project, really. I think we. One thing I will say is people often underestimate the amount of time it takes to do these things, and so I would, I would, you know, shoot higher if you can, <laughs> a dollar amount, but. Yeah, for sure. Oh, well, yeah, with those uh, with those uh, f- famous largesse that comes from public yeah. funds, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but but um, there's there's definitely space, even in reasonably small. Grants. I mean, if they're proper, so not 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 a kind of a uh, a fellowshipy, starty uppy kind of grant. That just isn't the that just isn't the space. I mean, the the budget or something like that is going to be reasonably threadbare as it is. But if you're writing, um, if you're writing big RO ones, or you're you're uh, writing big NSF grants, or you're you're getting a like, big uh, big clinical projects together. I mean, your RCT is already shittingly expensive compared to some other forms of science. So, you know. Yeah, good argument to be made that you don't want to set out on a study like that that is super expensive that has no chance of answering the the question you're hoping to answer. I think that's that's an easy sell. It's it's also so... Oh, don't worry, Kristen. We just need outcomes. <laughs> it's just outcomes. Never mind about that. Where's me outcome? It's it's also about the uh, the institutional review boards as well, because I think they also have an interest in making sure that research that actually uh, there's, there's there's a risk with any sort sort of research. So participants who are participating um, ought to be part of research that's actually asking uh, meaningful questions. So I think there's a lot there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, organisations and a lot of groups that have that that would have an interest in actually doing this stuff. But of course, that the money has to come from somewhere uh okay so uh before we finish up we do like to ask our guests some uh, quick fire questions so chris we want to ask you uh in regards to your research and your work what's something that you've changed your mind about over the last few years Okay, I'd have to say Twitter. Um, oh. uh, <laughs> I used to. Uh, I've only been on it for the last few years, and I was—I have to say—I was reluctant to get on it for anything work-related. I assumed that it would be a total time sink that would be basically useless. Now, uh, it the is first part's true. <laughs> yes, that part is true. I wasn't wrong about that, but um, actually, I have gotten on. Twitter and I've been surprised at how useful it has been. And there's a few things like it's great for networking. Um, and so I am now uh, co-authoring papers with people I met on Twitter. Uh, James, I met you on Twitter. I got you to come speak on our panel at the joint statistical meetings this summer through Twitter, I believe. I've been going around telling everyone that you were best at that as well, just so you know. If people are turning up and say, James says you're best, it's because I'm telling everyone that uh, I, I, I had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the panel. Okay. Then, and uh, so I got to watch Kristen's talk from the back of the room and it was very well received. Um, if, you, if you can make an audience full of statisticians laugh and still get the point across, <laughs> you are doing great. I think it's, 
I got some I got some pointers. You I think it. it wasn't so much that I was funny though, but I had some great material for the from the whole MBI stuff. Some of the quotes <laughs> from them are just so <laughs> yeah. funny. So I didn't even have to be funny. I, I saw they a, were, they were I saw quiet, a great, yeah. a great awesome. quote, which uh, there was a blog person who began with I'm not a statistician, but <laughs> oh, I, I used that one in that talk actually. Yes, <laughs> it's it, it's it's amazing. It, it's it's kind of like a I'm I'm not a racist, but <laughs> that that's it exactly. Yeah. No, no, not 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 to say that that these folks are racist. <laughs> no, 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 right? Yes, but uh, not- yeah, I mean, so, so Twitter uh, has been super useful for that, and also like the other great thing is I have a bunch of statistical pet peeves, like things that really annoy me. Oh, and, quick, and quick! Most people what are they? in my life. <laughs> oh well, like. Oh, I'm just going to try all possible combinations of the variables because then I, you know, if I don't do that, I haven't used all my data properly. That was a recent one. (laughs) 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 I haven't used all my data. I think you're missing a four down the back of the couch. Throw that in. So, you know, these things annoy me. And like, there's, you know, not too many. My my kids are not really interested in hearing all my statistical pet peeves. Um, But I can get on Twitter and go, guess what someone just said to me? And then I get this enormous response of like-minded people who can commiserate with my frustration. And I find that like just rewarding from a, you know, like I can get through my day aspect. So anyway, yeah. So who knew that Twitter was actually useful? Wow. That's, that's, that's the same journey that uh, Dr. Mm. Heathers has has come along. Oh, really? Yeah. Shut up. We're not... Yeah, I had my own come to Damascus <laughs> moment after Dan pissing in my ear for half a decade about how I needed to do the Twitter. It's 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 been, put- and so uh, I I started hoping I'd do better at it than him. But I mean, since he's discovered birds, everything's changed. <laughs> oh, James is, is is referring to a ridiculous tweet that I did a few days ago, which has oh. uh, gone as as the youth say viral. It was on Fox I'm News. I'm going to have to look it up now. I'll, I'll send it to you. It, it, it was lit- it, it was featured on Fox News this morning. Uh, what, what, you what, got on Fox News. I, wow. I got on. I got on Fox on Fox and Friends. Oh I'll, my I'll, gosh! Wow. Our, our, our old old mate's favorite uh, TV show. Um, and um, yeah, it, uh, uh, James, I was on Channel Seven as well. Wow. <laughs> back back home in in, in Australia. So yeah, thing, things got a bit wild. Quality. I really quality. haven't been on Twitter enough no, in the last few days. <laughs> it's uh, it, it it yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. Uh, but uh, but yes, uh, our, our second question that we want to ask you is, uh, what is a book or a paper that you recommend that everyone should read? Um, let's see. Uh, so my current favorite paper in the literature is just a small uh, paper in Nature that came out a few years ago by Jeffrey Leake and Roger Pang, and it's called P-Values Are Just the Tip of the Iceberg, and it basically encapsulates everything I just talked about <laughs> with that uh, worrying about P-Values is really not where we should be putting our money and that we have to worry about the 17 steps prior to the P-Value, and so they just captured that in such an eloquent way. Um, so, so that's a worth a quick read. Um I can give book recommendations too that are yeah. not related to stats. Yeah, yeah do it. Uh, so my favorite current, currently my favorite books are uh, Radium Girls, which is a really interesting book about how uh, there these women were painting with radium paint back in the 1910s and 1920s to make watch dials glow, and it's an interesting. Mm. Uh, science story. I read it with my son actually, and it had uh, you know just this, it was like a medical detective story, but then it had all this history. He found it quite fascinating. Um, so that's one of my favorites. And then uh, if you haven't read Bad Blood by John Kiriou yet, in terms of you know error error detection yes. and correction, <laughs> that's a great book. <laughs> Kristen, I got that and I read it in a night. Yes, 
because I started off at the start and there's so much that's congruent with your there's so much congruent with your sort of general bullshit detection it's a lot and of, like, what this you very do, interesting crossover from a scientific process into how startup and VC funding works and the kind of role of overconfidence and the, the, the figurehead. There's a lot of direct parallels to the scientific literature. It's also a phenomenally well-researched book. He's got a ton of insider stories and it's a very, very well-told story. Great cautionary tale. Couldn't agree with you more, as per usual. Best recommendation ever. Kristen for president, etc., etc. Thanks for those recommendations, and we're going to put links to the paper and those books on the show notes. But Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me.